Are you really diversified in your real estate holdings? Today, I have an amazing guest who is going to explain and extol the amazing virtues of industrial space as an investment. Um, Neil joins us and his experience and his ability to simplify this concept of what does it look like to invest in boring box buildings that actually have very nominal overhead and liability. It is extraordinary and I won't lie, I'm a little bit um, distracted by the opportunity that industrial space offers um, and the strength that it provided during the pandemic. So listen to the full episode and, and I'd love to know what you think. So at the end, drop me a note, a message, an email, however you want to do it. Um, and in the meantime, if you haven't already hit that subscribe button or like or whatever it is where you're listening or watching, please make sure that you do that. It is absolutely free and it completely supports um, the growth of Ask Me How I Know. And I'd completely appreciate it. Remember, I also love to hear from you and I respond to you. So if you have um, any questions or comments, feel free. Just shoot me a message at Ask Me How I Know podcast at gmail.com and um, let's be in touch. Well, let me pull you into the episode with Neil. Hey guys, welcome back to another awesome episode of Ask Me How I Know. I am super excited about this episode with Neil because we're going to dive into passive investing in the industrial space, which is just already blowing my mind. We had to stop our little chatter beforehand because I, I want to bomb you with questions. But Neil, first of all, let me just welcome you to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on, Julie. Super excited. <laughs> it's going to be a great conversation. Um, Neil is is not too far from where I grew up. He's over in San Francisco. And I'm a little jealous because you have really great food, as we already discussed. Um, <laughs> and you have a lot of, a lot of really great opportunities. Um, if you want, do you want to give everybody a background as to how you got into what you're investing in at this point? Oh, this could, this could be a long tail if you give me <laughs> give <laughs> Go ahead. a question spin like it, that. Spin a yarn. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I mean, you know, big picture, I grew up in the Bay Area, uh, kind of out in the suburbs there. Uh, I took a somewhat unusual route to get to the commercial real estate world. I took a detour uh, as a 18 year old boy, I decided, well, we could do something adult or we could go be a pilot. So I, I ended up going to the Air Force Academy and ultimately flew the C-130 Hercules for the Air Force for about 12 years. So very different chapter. Uh, I was an officer in the Air Force and then actually um, transitioned over to the Navy Reserve uh, for several other years to continue flying part-time afterwards. But got to see the world, fly all around, uh, been to you know, over 100 countries. It's been, uh, you know, just a, a great chapter in my life and really opened up a lot of opportunities afterwards. Well, one thing I just want to say, thank you for serving our country because there's a lot of sacrifice, but it might have been offset by the fact that you got to be a pilot. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of my, when, when I was in fourth grade, I wanted to be an Air Force pilot. I thought that'd be the coolest thing. It, there's there's a lot of fun that comes with it and you know some scariness but you know overall wouldn't trade it for anything and you know you we, we were flying a, a somewhat kind of tactical plane in that you know it's used for a lot of i would say uh 
you know, kind of down and dirty type of missions. Uh, you know, we could land on dirt field stuff, a lot of, you know, very remote locations where we'd land and drop off and pick up people and things. And, you know, just, uh, it was a, a great chapter for building relationships and kind of you know, figuring out who and where you want to be as a person. That's a huge element right there. It's figuring out who you want to be as a person and where you fit in the grand scheme of things. How did that experience influence you moving forward? Did you instantly leave, like leave and go into real estate investing? Uh, I had a one stop in between where I did about four years uh, working for a renewable energy startup. And oh. I think, you know, one thing I found from the flying world was I liked, you know, at first I thought it was just the excitement of flying, but I found I liked the kind of, you know, jobs that gave me an opportunity to push myself and take on a certain element of risk that had upside in terms of if you can analyze, you know, all this kind of chaos you know, contain most of it in a tight little box and then, you know, treat the rest of it in an informed way, you can really do things that you never really thought possible for yourself. And that, you know, kind of element, I think, is what drove me uh, afterwards to work for a startup. You know, this idea, our startup had this technology that we would take um, effectively wood waste streams, so like forest residues or ag waste, put it through a technology called pyrolysis, which was high pressure, high heat, low oxygen, and actually create um, automotive ready gasoline. Uh, and then this byproduct was this biocarbon that we could work into different soil uses to effectively recarbonize the soil. And it was wild. And, you know, I ended up going under because the economics didn't quite shake out, but the, the process and the idea was, was just fascinating for me. That's amazing. And actually just thinking on Rockefeller and how he basically discovered gasoline and the use for gasoline. It's pretty cool that you guys had a use for the byproduct from the very get-go. Yeah, That's... no, I, absolutely. We, we had a, a fuel side and then my role in the company was business development on this, what all my friends eloquently called fancy dirt. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> visually, it looked like kind of ground up carbon. And you could, uh, you know, there was ways where we could pH neutralize it, remove the, the volatile organic compounds and effectively have a blend that you could blend and truly enhance the, the holding properties of most soil types. So it would effectively improve the holding qualities of say sandy soils. And simultaneously you could add it to like clay heavy soils to Im improve aeration and improve microbiology uh, and really improve the overall performance of you know plant growth and whatever it is you were trying to grow, whether it was horticulture, commercial agriculture or whatnot. I know what they grow in California. No I'm kidding. <laughs> Idaho hasn't gotten there yet. <laughs> Idaho's not there yet. <laughs> I just have to make a joke since you're in San Francisco. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> totally fair. Um, <laughs> so you have this this detour, but everything builds on itself. I'm a firm believer. If you are present where you are, everything prepares you for the next place that you need to be in life, and so. Again, this begs a question. So how did you end up in real estate? <laughs> <laughs> no, great question. So I realized, you know, with my time in the startup, you know, eventually I kind of wound down the flying side, realized very clearly I didn't want to kind of go into the very predictable world of commercial flying. You know, 
for example, applying for Delta or United or FedEx. I was like, going to say Southwest. Job. You've got personality. Oh, there you, go. you can be there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could probably run a good uh, intercom there. But um, no, you know, a, a lot of my friends went that route. And, you know, it, it it's consistent. Um, it's fairly predictable. Obviously, COVID threw a wrench a little bit in that. But, um, you know, in general, it's a, it's a decent job. But it's you're not going to get a lot of surprises. There's not a lot of opportunity for really pushing yourself personally or, you know, just in that, that professional capacity. And, and mostly I found after doing some, you know, kind of personal searching was I didn't like the idea that my income was tied to my time. And, you know, being a pilot is a perfect uh, example of that, because if you want to make more money, you simply have to be in the cockpit more, you have to be away from home more. And really, there's no way to truly leverage your your wealth uh, without sacrificing that on on your personal you know time and and uh, work life balance there. So that you know, after doing some thinking, and someone had recommended Rich Dad Poor Dad. I was going to ask that, you, I'm like, did you read the yep. Bible and learn about <laughs> course, time exchange? <laughs> yep. No, and, and it really it 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 was a a light bulb moment for me, and I said, all right, you know, I want to transition into something that allows me to build something that works for me. And this idea of removing myself, removing my hours from my income earning ability. Again, that that Purple Bible 101. And you know, had a had an opportunity even to to meet um, Robert Kiyosaki, uh, that the the author a couple of years back. It was fascinating. He actually has a military pilot background as well. He was a a helicopter pilot for the, the Marine Corps for a number of years. And so just a, a really interesting, you know, a lot of, a, you know, similar wavelengths in terms of, you know, kind of how we approach flying and life and investing. And I, I loved it. So I had an opportunity to hop on with uh, the husband of a family friend who had started a real estate investment company and, and his firm effectively uh, really was was equity focused. So we would raise money from a network of investors and we would partner on a project by project basis with operators or developers that had you know a skill set in a certain asset type but lacked the ability to raise money from their own investor group. So we would effectively be that equity arm. That's okay. And let me just to clarify for anyone listening is that did you create a fund? Because funds are so trendy, right? Did you create a fund <laughs> to do that? So you're cool kids? Or did you follow the traditional syndication model? We we were old school, I guess. Uh, yeah. not cool enough for it to be a fund. Uh, no, we, we did uh, project by project uh, money raising. And, you know, I, I liked it because I think from a capital raising side, it forces you to be very sharp. Uh, you have to know you have to be able to sell effectively sell each opportunity, be able to, to analyze and have each opportunity stand on its own legs without just going into this you know, magical whirlpool of funds where money goes in and swishes around and money comes out. And you know, don't get me wrong, if you have the track record and you know the, the right investor group, funds are amazing. But you know, especially early on, I think from a personal side, being able to analyze the underwriting, you know, dig into the numbers, understand the asset type, you know, look at the the true business model of a lot of different types of commercial real estate early on was hugely beneficial. So, I mean, just to use an example, we had, you know, one partner group that we did a few deals with that strictly did class B value add multifamily in Northeast Atlanta. So a very tight niche. And then another group 
did largely multi-tenant retail in Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh, another group did, you know, senior assisted living development and entitlement in Northern California. So these these are very different asset types, but each one with an expert in that field. And it really allowed us to, you know, kind of deep dive in each one and really understand it in a way that probably not a lot of people get to in terms of needing to know to convey the opportunity to our investor group. Well, you know, I'll, I'll speak to that just by way of having my podcast. I speak to people in a variety of um, asset classes and yet most people are niched down into a specific asset class. And mm-hmm. um, so that really is a unique vantage point to be able yeah. to see the, see the scenery for what it is. And what I was just um, very enamored that you are involved in this whole industrial space. I have never spoken with anyone involved in raising capital for the industrial space or investing in the industrial space. And honestly, it sparks so many questions in my mind. So can you tell us like, what would you characterize invest the industrial space as just as a um, way of people to get a waypoint? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, while I was with this previous company, one of the firms we helped raise some money on early on was Mag Capital Partners, who I'm with full time now. And their their very niche expertise, um, like you mentioned, there is single tenant net leased industrial. Um, so as a whole, typically industrial tends to be um, manufacturing or it tends to be warehouse distribution, uh, largely very high square footage spaces that are typically occupied by a single tenant. And that that nature of finding the relationship between this, this value-add activity, this, this manufacturing, this creation of some product, whether it be you know, an, an end-user consumer product or more often than not, a intermediary product. Um, so there's so much manufacturing that goes on behind the scenes for most individuals where they are making you know, auto, auto fluid transfer assemblies and, you know, airplane wing spars and all these pieces that go to the final company that you are more familiar with, who basically assembles all these parts and pieces and creates the, the, the final product. But the relationship between this industrial real estate, very unsexy real estate, right? It's, you know, it's not flashy. It doesn't have you know, shiny windows. It's usually big square buildings with a flat roof. I'm thinking but... Gotham. That's all. I'm just thinking <laughs> no, we're so in Gotham true, right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the, the smokestack is a very, you know, specialized industrial with a, you know, the refining industries. Um, but really most, the vast majority of manufacturing industrial space literally is giant square buildings flat top that are, are kind of nondescript on the outside. And that's done by design because they are hugely useful for so many different types of manufacturing uses inside that it's a very usable transitional space in terms of a real estate investment. Seems sketchy. Just not going to lie. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how does this actually, one, my daughter is in fourth grade and uh, she's part of her economics. They just did this little part portion on economics. So I'm like, oh, you're talking about in fourth grade terms, capital goods, those in-between goods that we need in order yep. to, to create something else. So um but but how does this play out um return wise? What does that look like return wise? What's that 
investment duration? Do you own the actual building? And then you're just, you know, having that tenant. I mean, basically, I mean, is that the relationship here? And how? walk me through how that works. And I'd also like to know what that looked like during COVID. And I'm just throwing all like questions out here right now. And then where does that go in the future? Yeah, no, again, great questions. So, you know, I think the best way to approach that is to maybe compare industrial with a more common asset type. We'll talk about, say, multifamily. So there's there's a lot of people in terms of the commercial real estate world, you go single family to multifamily apartments, and that's a, a familiar asset type. People and, live there. You know, I get people living, right? Yeah. So most, most people have rented at some point. They they yeah. understand the dynamic of having a landlord, paying rent, how that money flows. The the landlord takes that rent money, then they pay expenses, upkeep, you know, paint, new roofs, whatever, all those capital improvements, and then whatever's left over effectively is that free cash flow, which goes to either the landlord or their investor group. Um, Somewhat similar, but somewhat different on industrial. So industrial, rather than having a huge swath of tenants where you're kind of coming in saying, all right, you know, maybe it's 80% occupy. And I think the market can support me put investing some money, putting some, you know, new countertops, new cabinets. I think I can increase rents. I think I can increase occupancy. So the difference on the industrial side is you are taking on a fully performing asset from day one. So the occupancy is 100% and your rent bumps are actually pre-negotiated in the lease. So you you are effectively taking a, a maximum performing unit and the risk, rather than the risk being in, does my demographics support the business plan to increase all these elements? Instead, my risk is, does my tenant have the financial effectively strength to maintain what they're doing, typically what they've been doing for the last 30, 40, 50 years for the period of time that I plan to own this real estate. So really it comes down to a much deeper dive in the credit of your tenant uh, than you would see in even a multi-tenant retail or especially an apartment type of complex. So, you know, on a on an apartment renter, you know, you might do a quick credit check it's going to be, you know, possibly a 90 second, you know, check of a credit score and, you know, maybe one reference point on a commercial tenant, especially an industrial one. I mean, that that tenant credit, you will spend sometimes weeks investigating, interviewing, looking at balance sheets, at financial summaries, at their debt loads, what their historical EBITDAs have looked like, cash flows, and really having that analyzed by an expert to say, hey, here they are. They're financially viable now. Here's their industry. Here's why we think they will continue to be able to effectively pay their rent for the next roughly five years that we plan to hold this real estate. See, because that's what I'm looking at is that you're really taking a deep dive into who is this, what is their business, and where is their business going in the future? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, yeah. It's it's almost a, a blend of a commercial real estate or a traditional real estate investment. With a bit of a private equity feel, where you are you're banking on on the tenant, you know, not necessarily growing like a private equity group needs their their companies to do, but at least maintaining, you know. And you're you're looking at that credit and the forward projection of that company, about equally as much as you're looking at the, the bones and structure of your real estate. That's that's incredible. So, are there certain tenants that you would look at where? 
just automatically we we're not even going to participate. We're not even going to entertain purchase this purchase because this tenant, this industry might be dissolving within the next decade or what is your projection time frame wise? How long do they have to be a viable tenant? Um, if you're going to hold yeah. the property 30, 40 years. <laughs> Great question. Um, so we, we come in, our, our investment philosophy is typically about a five-year hold and that okay. that's intentional. Um, we actually, we buy most of our real estate from owner occupants. So to use an example, um, we are doing what's called sale leaseback. So effectively you'll have, say you have a, a manufacturing company, we'll say they make widgets or, and it will make it more, more specific. Let's say they make, uh, uh, wheel widget frames spinners. on cars, widget spinners. There we go. Yeah, widget yeah. spinners, widget spinners right. for kids. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we have the, uh, the, the number one manufacturer of fidget spinners, you know, we'll say it's located in Texas because uh, there's a lot of manufacturing out there and the, the owner is looking for his or her exit, right? So the owner has built yeah. this fidget spinner company from scratch. Him or her has hit retirement age. They will typically sell their company to a private equity firm. Uh, that private equity firm is buying fidget spinners incorporated because they think they can grow that fidget spinning business significantly. Now, if that fidget spinner business owns the real estate, that acquisition by the private equity group, PE groups like to own companies that don't necessarily like to own real estate. Their specialty is not oh, real estate investment. Their specialty is building and growing operating companies. So what they will effectively do is sell us the real estate and take the proceeds from the sale and reinvest it into the operating company in order to grow that operating company per their business plan. Interesting. I never... I. This is like news to me. This is, I love my podcast in the sense that selfishly <laughs> I get to learn about different nuances that I never understood before. So, um, and then they can just sell off their company and it's a more viable sale at that point. They're going to attract it's, better. Exactly. Yeah. They're, they're effectively freeing up the capital tied up in the real estate and reinvesting that into the company and simultaneously they are going from a owner position to a tenant position. So simultaneously, as we negotiate the price of that piece of real estate, that industrial building, we're also negotiating a brand new absolute triple net lease. And that okay. lease is, is truly the structure of really the cash flow and the predictability of the, the cash um, that's coming from this investment. So our, our typical lease structure will be a 20-year term. So it's very long term. Uh, and it's anchored by a high credit tenant. And so we say, hey, this this tenant has the bones to be able to, to perform. We will hold the building for roughly the first five years of that term. And then our exit, we will sell that building with that lease attached to the next buyer, still with 15 years left on that term. So there's a lot of buyers out there that would find that effectively an investment attractive uh, because there's a long time before you ever have to worry about a releasing of it. Wow. Okay. So are there any downsides, you know, in the apartment multifamily space, you know, it's, Hey, I'm going to do the value add. I have this bridge loan for this in between, and then I'm going to refinance and all this. So it doesn't sound like there's going to be, if I come in and I buy, uh, you sell off at five years and I come in as the buyer, where's the advantage for that buyer? So there, there's some value add built by being the one who executes that sale lease back. So when you are the one actually structuring 
the lease and structuring the purchase, it's kind of a complicated deal. It can take a long time, sometimes five, six months from when we first start negotiations to when we finally have a deal that's even ready to start raising money for. So there's a lot, most of that value add goes on beforehand. So when we sell, the the next buyers are going to be yield focused investors. So they're going to be people that are just happy getting that eight, nine, 10% a year. It's coming in. They don't necessarily need that huge value add. Um, from our side, you know, because we're on the front end of that lease, we were able to create some additional value in that process. But where the, where the real magic happens is the structure of the lease in terms of moving all your unknowns that can really just crater your cash flow uh, to the responsibility of the tenant. So that that comes from the structure of absolute triple net. So based on the lease, we are moving all property taxes to the tenant's position, right? So even if the tax assessor comes and says, we're doubling doubling your property taxes, doesn't matter. All that goes in is paid by the tenant. Second is insurance. All insurance, uh, they can double our premiums. There can be deductibles. A, a hailstorm could take out a roof. Doesn't matter. All that's taken care of by the tenant. The third is going to be utilities. So they pay all their, their electric bills. Uh, and it goes beyond that to even include building maintenance. So the tenant, if a roof hits its seven or 10 year roof life, the tenant pays for the new roof. If the pavement outside needs to get repoured, the pavement pays for it. They, the tenant pays for it. They pay for landscape. They pay for new heating and air. 100% of the expenses associated with owning real estate are all on the tenant's position. So we effectively have a highly predictable cash flow stream strictly from the rent. Okay, so let's just say that this box, this boring box, just became super <laughs> sexy, right? I mean, like anyone, any investor is going to look at this to say, "Wow, my liabilities are nominal." So, what liability is left? Just the fact of are they going to stay in business and continue to pay? Yep. But if like you've vetted that, and let's any other liabilities at this point? Not really. So, I mean, the way it's structured there, you know, we've, we've removed and, you know, to use a pilot example, we've taken all the controllable operational risks of this investment that we can control and we've moved those to the tenant and eliminated them. So, you know, effectively there's the credit risk. That's the, the last one, but we don't need to have this company stay in business forever. You know, we just need them to stay financially viable. Even flatline growth is fine as long as they can pay their, pay their rent for the next five years. And what's great is a lot of times they're private equity backed. So you have someone with a vested interest in their success with deeper pockets than probably that company has directly owned owned by that private equity group. So, you know, really there's a lot of, I would say, alignments in motivation between, you know, that, that tenant company who has full control of their own real estate and us as an investment group who has, you know, really uh, effectively near guaranteed cash flow as you can get. And it's typically eight, nine, 10% a year from day one. Okay. So this is just, I am wide eyed right now (laughs) with this whole, with this whole concept, because I haven't ever heard anyone break it down. Um, So (laughs) this sounds amazing. Sign me up today. Okay. (laughs) Where do you see this going? Like what, how did everybody um, fare during the pandemic and, with technology shifting so dramatically, so quickly, how is that going to start affecting things? In, so, in your great opinion. Questions. So to address the first one, during COVID, 
Uh, we literally had 100% of our portfolio. We had about 23 different projects under ownership at the start of COVID. 100% of them were deemed essential. Uh, 100, 100% of them continued to to operate. Um, you know, we all everyone paid rent on time. Uh, we we had. Uh, one one side exception was a something outside of our normal wheelhouse of industrial. We had one single tenant retail. Uh, they were a health club in, uh, I guess, uh, Des Moines, Des Moines, um, Iowa, and they came to us and they early on and they said, "Look, we you know we're forced closed here. We don't know how long it's going to be, um, you know, and we were able to negotiate a forbearance with them, basically a pause on their rent." And we were able to negotiate the same with our real estate lender who took a pause on our mortgage and everyone just did a three month pause. And at the end of the three months, everyone started up again and they, they back paid all the, all the missing rent immediately. And uh, our investors in that deal actually accrued interest at the same time. So the, the investors will actually see a slightly higher return than originally projected. Okay. That's going to blow everybody's minds when they hear that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, Oh, and this company interest is called Genesis Health Clubs, and they, so if you're in Des Moines, go and support them. <laughs> oh yeah, they they have about fifty locations total, and oh, what's neat about a lot of these leases too is if if the the strength of the actual company is say marginal or medium, we can effectively um, seek out additional credit or what they call credit enhancement. So in that case, we actually have personal guarantees from the two owners of the health club. And these two owners were were willing to put personal guarantees out, and they have pretty high net worth, and that basically was a secondary guarantee on the payment of that rent overall. So, just a you know really well securitized investments in a way that you know you, you don't necessarily see in the in the retail and multifamily space in terms of tenant quality. This is what I that is exactly what I'm hearing. I'm like, wow, you just <laughs> like really dismiss so many of the snags that can come up. So amazing. Okay. Future crystal ball moment, yeah. right? Yeah. Industry. Right, let, me, let me give it a rub here. Yeah, <laughs> give it a rub. Shake it if you will, like a snow shake globe. It, <laughs> you know. Outlook. How how um, are you preparing for the direction of the world, the ever-changing world? Yeah. No, it's a great question. So, you know, industrial as an asset class, I think last year was was the number one performing asset class. We, we're seeing a lot of legs in that. So especially with some of the, the major trends with COVID that shifted were a large shift. You know, more people are doing e-commerce, more people are looking at shift from home. Those require distribution centers, those require additional manufacturing. There's been a lot of stimulus. All these things require space to produce, to store, and to ship. And that really is is Industrial 101. And that has created a huge amount of demand on existing industrial space. And we we play in what I call middle market industrial, where we're buying kind of class B build, where it's typically built in, you know, kind of the late 80s, early 90s, uh, you know, similar to an effective, uh, you know, class B multifamily apartment, right? It's It's not the most sexy piece of real estate, but it's still in demand. And what I love about it is we're buying for typically about 50 to 60 bucks a square foot replacement value to build new industrial almost anywhere in the country now, especially in today's times, is almost $200 a square foot. So we are significantly below replacement costs in a way that this demand just keeps it hot almost in every market around the country. 
That is extraordinary. So how fierce is the competition? You know, it, it has gotten intense. Uh, I'm not going to lie. You know, we've seen cap rates decrease uh, effectively, meaning for the same amount of income production, um, you know, you're going to pay a little bit more for that real estate. What we found, you know, maybe three or four years ago, we might have been able to get a fantastic tenant at a very central location in a metro. You know, as those cap rates kind of squeeze, you know, we still find opportunities, but sometimes with a fantastic tenant, maybe 20 miles outside of town. So, you know, there's a, a bit of range in industrial where you can you can typically afford to go in a more secondary or tertiary location if it's accompanied by a very strong credit tenant. So that that's kind of a trade-off that we're willing to make to still be able to get attractive yields. And, you know, ultimately we're seeing a lot of opportunity in the future, especially as the whole idea of sale leaseback continues to increase in popularity. More manufacturing companies are saying, hey, we could effectively release this piece of real estate, reinvest it in our company and you know, grow this in our core specialty. And that effectively is really attractive to a lot of producers and manufacturers that are looking to grow their business. This is so interesting. And you're able to make it so um, tangible in that level of understanding. And I appreciate that so much. I hate to have to wrap up such an interesting topic with someone who's really um, fun to listen to and learn from. Um, But it is that time. Is there anything that you would say, I wish I would have known, or if you want to know, any final nuggets you'd like to drop? Yeah. um... You know, from from the industrial side, I encourage people to look outside of what you see, right? You know, people see a lot of multifamily and there's more out there. You know, industrial is just one of them, but there's self-storage, there's senior assisted living, there's, you know, student housing. There's a lot of other asset classes that tend to be, have some uh, diversification in, in terms of how they perform during different times. Case in point, COVID hits you know, retail and multifamily got hit really hard, industrial and self-storage did very well, right? And that's just an example of how having that diversification can really help. So I would say, you know, ask around and a great way to do it is, you know, find people in your investment communities or go to, you know, meetups or REIs that have a bunch of similar passive investors. Ask for recommendations. I, I find that's the best way to do it. You know, see who other people are putting money with use that as a starting point, vet the sponsor team, see if you like them, start small, you know, put some money, see if they do what you're saying. But the, the earlier you kind of spread that capital seed, if you will, um, you know, you figure out who, who does you right and who performs well with your money responsibly. And then you can grow with teams that you really enjoy that way. I love that. And it's, I think it's so important to grow with teams that you do enjoy. The returns are really great, but it's I, the relational aspect is really important in my, that's just my own personal estimation. Like I, I got to know you, like you trust you and know that hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've me personally, as I've been in this industry longer, I found more and more, I, I invest on the personality and the team that I do the project. I'm like, you know what, you know, your numbers, I'm coming in as a passive investor. I I'm investing because I like you as a, a person, you know, I like, I like your energy. I like your, your follow through, you know, I like what you've shown me so far. And that to me is probably 80% of my, you know, investment <laughs> analysis, whether I invest in a, in a project or not. Yeah. Well, and you know, somebody's character at that point, you know, if you can say, now I know that 
you're not going to quit on this and that you're going to take it past yep. the finish line. Cause I've seen this. I mean, that right there is way better than these numbers look good. Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. I mean, anyone can spin a pro forma to make a, or actually a, a funny phrase I just heard the other day. It was from another broker and he's like, I never met a pro forma I didn't like. And it's kind of true, you know. <laughs> I, this is, I am, I'm totally going to borrow that because it's completely true. The pro forma just looks amazing. You're like, they always wow. do, right? Yeah. And then yep. you start looking under the head and running your own yep. numbers. You're like, where did, Wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> where did they get that number? Oh, gosh. Yeah. I encourage people to remember pro formas are a sales tool. So it it is as good as the team standing behind it. And that's why the team is so important. Oh, that's such a good, a good last nugget to leave people on. Now, people are excited about industrial at the moment. They are listening to this meal and they are like, <laughs> okay, I like Neil. I like what he represents and I need to diversify into industrial. How are they going to reach out to you, you and your group? Yeah, uh, easy way. You can check out our website. Um, so we're MAG Capital Partners. Website's www.magcp.com, short and sweet. Uh, or just drop me a line. Um, my email is neil, N-E-I-L, at magcp.com. We'd love to hear your comments on the show, any questions, or if you're interested in joining our investor group, happy to talk. Oh, that, I just I love it. Great conversation. Thank you for you know, just so many insights on this, Neil. I appreciate having you on Ask Me How I Know. Well, thanks so much for having me, Julie. Until next time, everyone, make sure you go and that you check out what Mag has to offer. Check out Neil because, like he said, it's all about the person and the team. And um, connect up if this is of any interest to you, like it is to me now. I have all these like <laughs> little light bulb aha moments. Then you know, follow the little bunny, follow the bunny down the trail and see where it <laughs> lands, because it might be the great way that you need to diversify your portfolio for stability and security. Until next time, go find your freedom. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of Ask Me How I Know. This episode was brought to you by Three Keys Investments. They are dedicated to helping people like you. Yeah, you, my awesome listeners, develop passive income and legacy wealth through multifamily investing. Feel free to check out their website, threekeysinvestments.com to see if there is an offering that will help your portfolio grow and meet all of your needs. If you haven't already rated, reviewed, subscribed, liked all of those bells and whistles, I would be absolutely honored if you would do that for Ask Me How I Know. Thanks again and go make it a great day.